0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot org. Around the World in 80 Days By Jules Verne Chapter 1 In which Phileas Fogg and Passepartout accept each other. The one is master, the other is man. Mr. Phileas Fogg lived in 1872 at number seven Savile road burlington gardens the house in which Sheridan died in 1814 he was one of the most noticeable members of the reform club though he seemed always to avoid attracting attention an enigmatical personage about whom little was known except that he was a polished man of the world people said that he resembled byron At least that he was byronic but he was a bearded tranquil byron who might live on a thousand years without growing old certainly an englishman it was more doubtful whether phileas fogg was a londoner he was never seen on charge nor at the bank nor in the counting rooms of the city no ships ever came into london docks of which he was the owner He had no public employment, he had never been entered at any of the inns of court, either at the Temple, or Lincoln's Inn, or Gray's Inn, nor had his voice ever resounded in the Court of Chancery, or in the Exchequer, or the Queen's Bench, or the Ecclesiastical Courts. He certainly was not a manufacturer nor was he a merchant or gentleman farmer. His name was strange to the scientific and learned societies, and he never was known to take part in the sage deliberations of the Royal Institution, or the London Institution, the Artisans' Association, or the Institution of Arts and Sciences. He belonged, in fact, to none of the numerous societies which swarm in the English capital, from the Harmonic to that of the Entomologists, founded mainly for the purpose of abolishing pernicious insects. Phileas Fogg was a member of the Reform, and that was all. The way in which he got admission to his exclusive club was simple enough. He was recommended by the bearings, with whom he had an open credit. His cheques was regularly paid at sight from his account, current, which was always flush. Was Phileas Fogg rich? Undoubtedly. But those who knew him best could not imagine how he had made his fortune, and Mr. Fogg was the last person to whom to apply for the information. He was not lavish, nor on the contrary, for whenever he knew that money was needed for a noble, useful, or benevolent purpose, he supplied it quietly and sometimes anonymously. He was, in short, the least communicative of men. He talked very little and seemed all the more mysterious for his taciturn manner. His daily habits were quite open to observation but whenever he did so exactly the same thing that he had always done before, that his wits of the curious were fairly puzzled. Had he travelled? It was likely, for no one seemed to know the world more familiarly than was no spot so secluded that he did not appear to have an intimate acquaintance with it, He often corrected with a few clear words the thousand conjectures advanced by members of the club as to lost and unheard-of travelers, pointing out the true probabilities and seeming as if gifted with a sort of second sight. So often did events justify his predications. He must have traveled everywhere, at least in the spirit. It was at least certain that Phillies Fogg had not absented himself from London for many years. Those who were honored by a better acquaintance with him than the rest declared that nobody could pretend to have ever seen him anywhere else. His sole pastimes were reading the papers and playing whist. He often won at this game which as a silent one, harmonized with his nature, but his winnings never went into his purse, being reserved as a fund for his charities. Mr. Frog played not to win, but for the sake of playing. The game was, in his eyes, a contest, a struggle with a difficulty yet motionless, unwearing struggle congenial to his tastes. Billy Fogg was not known to have either wife or children, which may happen to the most honest people, either relatives or near friends, which is certainly more unusual. He lived alone in his house in Savile Road, whither none penetrated a single domestic sufficed to serve him. He breakfasted and dined at the club at hours mathematically fixed in the same room at the same table never taking his meals with other members much less bringing a guest with him and went home at exactly midnight only to retire at once to bed he never used the cozy chambers which the reform provided for its favored members he passed ten hours out of the twenty four in Savile row either in sleeping making his toilet. When he chose to take a walk, it was with a regular step in the entrance hall with its mosaic flooring or in the circular gallery with its dome supported by twenty red prophyry ionic columns and illuminated by blue painted windows. When he breakfasted or dined all the resources of the club, its kitchens, and pastries, its buttery and dairy, aided to crowd his table with their most succulent stories. He was served by the gravest waiters in dress coats and shoes with swan-skin soles, with proffered the veins in special porcelain and on the finest linen club decanters of a lost mold containing his sherry. His port and his cinnamon-spiced claret, while his beverages were refreshingly cool with ice, brought at great cost from the American lakes. If to live in this style is to be eccentric, it must be confessed that there is something good in eccentricity. The mansion in Savile Row, thought not sumptuous was exceedingly comfortable. The habits of its occupants were such as to demand but little from the sole dome stick, but Phileas Fogg required him to be almost superhumanly prompt and regular. On this very 2nd of October, he had dismissed James Forrester, being that luckless youth had brought him serving water at 84 degrees Fahrenheit instead of 86 and he was awaiting his successor who was due at the house between 11 and half-past. Phileas Fogg was seated squarely in his armchair, his feet close together like those of a grenadier on parade, his hands resting on his knees, his body straight, his head erect. He was steadily watching a complicated clock, which indicated the hours, the minutes, the seconds, the days, the months, and the years. At exactly half-past eight, Mr. Fogg would, according to his daily habits, quit the vile road and repair to the reform. A rap at this moment sounded on the door of the cozy apartment where Phileas Fogg was seated, and James Forster, the dismissed servant, appeared. The new servant, said he. A young man of thirty advanced and bowed you are a frenchman i believe asked phileas fogg and your name is john jean if monsieur pleases replied the newcomer jean pospartout a surname which has clung to me because i have a natural aptness for going out of one business into another i believe i'm honest monsieur but to be outspoken i've had several trades i've been an itinerant singer a circus rider." when I used to vault like leotard and dance on a rope like Blondin. Then I got to be a professional of gymnastics so as to make better use of my talents. Then I was a surgeon fireman at Paris and associate at many a big fire. But I quitted France five years ago and wishing to taste the sweet of domestic life took service as a valet here in England, finding myself out of place, and hearing that Monsieur Phileas Fogg was the most exact and subtle gentleman in the United Kingdom. I have come to Monsieur in the hope of living with him a tranquil life, and forgetting even the name of Pouspartout. "'Pouspartout suits me,' replied Mr. Fogg. You are well recommended to me. I hear a good report of you. You know my conditions? Yes, monsieur. Good. What time is it? Twenty two minutes after eleven, replied Passepartout, drawing an enormous silver watch from the depths of his pocket. You are too slow, said mister Fogg. Pardon me, monsieur. It is impossible. You are four minutes too slow. No matter. It's enough to mention the error. Now from this time, 29 minutes after 11 a.m., this Wednesday, 2nd October, you are in my service. Phyllis Fogg got up, took his hat in his left hand, put it on his head with an automatic motion and went off without a word. Passepartout heard the street door shut once. It was his new master going out. He heard it shut again. It was his predecessor, James Forster. Departing in his turn, Puspark two remained alone the house in Savile Row End of Chapter one This has been a TBOL three production.